Are you not tired of the Christian life you've been living? Don't you grow weary of reading the Bible, praying, and going to church? Wouldn't you really like to enter into the very depths of your soul and encounter God in indescribable experiences that will radically change you forever? If so, then you must learn to live out the disciplines that have been used by the historic church almost since its inception. Read this book or take this course or go to this renewal retreat or work on this degree and we will teach you what the spiritual masters of the past knew but that we have long forgotten. That's the way Gary Gilley, pastor of Southern View Chapel, summarizes the pitches that are used to draw people into the spiritual formation movement. Gary's Think on These Things newsletter that introduced his readers to the topic of spiritual formation last year has been in our hall rack for months, and I have found his entire series on spiritual formation to be very informative and well-researched. I've been aware of spiritual formation for years and knew it was big in the evangelical world, but I did not realize just how big it had become in Christian churches until I received the February issue of Christian Standard. The issue, headlined, in tune with the Spirit is dedicated to spiritual formation. Among those who write articles defining and, quite frankly, promoting the disciplines practiced in spiritual formation are professors from Lincoln and pastors from one of our largest megachurches in the state. According to the lead article, spiritual formation is about interacting with God, abiding in Christ, and living according to the Spirit, and doing so by engaging in activities that help us experience life with God in the present. Obviously, those goals resonate with every serious disciple of Christ. But before we jump on the spiritual formation bandwagon, perhaps we should examine its origin and look again at a less controversial and more biblical option. The modern spiritual formation movement began back in the 70s when a Trappist monk found a 14th century book in the library of St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. The book, entitled The Cloud of Unknowing, offered a means by which contemplative practices long used by Catholic monks could be taught to lay people. Richard Foster built upon that discovery and in 1978 published The Celebration of Discipline, the book that launched the popularity and present interest in spiritual formation, concerning which Foster wrote in 2004, 
When I first began writing in the field in the late 70s and early 80s, the term spiritual formation was hardly known except for highly specialized references in relation to the Catholic orders. Today, it is a rare person who has not heard the term. Seminary courses in spiritual formation proliferate like baby rabbits. Huge numbers are seeking to become certified as spiritual directors to answer the cry of multiplied thousands for spiritual direction. In his book, Foster promoted the use of 12 disciplines that he said would lead to spiritual growth and maturity or spiritual formation. They are meditation, prayer, particularly contemplative prayer, fasting, study, simplicity, solitude, submission, service, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. More recent authors have added the sacramental life, silence, journaling, spiritual mentoring, pilgrimage, Sabbath-keeping, sacred reading known as Lectio Divina, and the need for spiritual directors. Now, while some of these disciplines can be found in Scripture, the way they are practiced in spiritual formation more closely aligns with the practices of 4th century mystics, monks, and hermits and medieval monasteries and the goal of experiencing God, hearing from God, and even becoming one with God through silence and meditation bears unmistakable similarities to Eastern religions. I'm convinced that a much safer and more biblical path to Christian maturity is the one embarked upon by the 3,000 who came to Christ on Pentecost. A path that has been successfully followed by Christians of all persuasions for nearly 2,000 years. A path we noted in passing last week. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I believe those four things are all that are necessary for our spiritual formation, or as we might choose to call it, to avoid confusion, our biblical development. Let's explore them more in depth this morning, beginning with the apostles' teaching. Now, those who responded to Peter's preaching on Pentecost understood the need to repent, to die to an old way of life, and to begin walking in newness of life. But if they were to go very far in their new life, they would have to know where to go and how to get there. Thus, the need for further teaching. Coming from a Jewish background, they had a basic understanding of who God was 
and what he expected of his people. And they no doubt knew the Jewish scriptures. What they now needed was a more complete understanding of who Christ was and how to live under the new covenant that replaced the old. And the responsibility to give them that understanding fell to the apostles. They had been with Jesus and had been taught by him for three years. And now they had received the Holy Spirit who enabled them to remember and understand all that Jesus had taught and to know everything. He wanted his body on earth, the church, to know and do. The apostles' commission had been to make disciples throughout the world, to baptize them and to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. And this they would have to do in person before putting it in written form so believers of every generation would have access to their teaching. And it was the information contained in their teaching and ultimately in their writings that would enable newly born believers to grow into spiritually mature believers. It was what they taught, the doctrine found in the New Testament, that would provide the spiritual nourishment for spiritual growth. When writing to the Corinthians, Paul noted that babes in Christ require spiritual milk. And the writer of Hebrews noted that as babes mature, they are expected to progress to solid food and leave behind the milk, the elementary teaching. But it is the written word of God that provides what's needed at every stage of a believer's development. For as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The goal is for every believer to become a man of God or a woman of God who is equipped for every good work. And it is the scriptures, the inspired word of God, as delivered to us through prophets and apostles that equip us. To do that, the scriptures must be handled accurately, carefully, respectfully, and intellectually as the very word of truth. There is no indication in scripture that they are to be turned into mystical phrases to be repeated over and over to create a sense of spirituality or read in a way that feeds the soul without impacting the mind, which is a goal of sacred reading or the Lectio Divina in spiritual formation. The first believers wanted to know God's will, and the apostles taught it to them. If we would know God's will today, we must commit ourselves to a diligent study of the apostles' teaching. The second thing we note of the 3,000 is that they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. Luke records that those who believed 
were together and had all things in common. They became a family that depended on each other. They spent time together. They ate together. They enjoyed one another's company. And, of course, they worshipped and praised God together and received the apostles' teaching together. Most of them had come to Jerusalem as religious pilgrims on a spiritual journey. They shared a common Jewish faith, but in reality were tourists come to town for a religious festival. They bumped into one another in the temple, but they didn't get to know one another. They were a collection of strangers gathered in a religious place for a few hours who would soon go their own way. But when they were born again, everything changed. They had been born into a common family and were now brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, they had become the body of Christ, a body made up of individual parts, but a body that depended on all the parts, each part doing what it was intended to do, so the body as a whole could function as God intended it to function. Paul would later write of the body in Romans 12, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. In order to be what God intends for the church to be, We need each other. In fact, each and every one of us needs each and every one of us. No part of the body is superfluous. All are needed and all are interdependent. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. It is therefore wrong to narrow the field of influence and turn away from the body as a whole as the source of guidance when it comes to growing into what Christ desires us to become. And not only is it wrong, it's dangerous. There are inherent dangers in placing one individual in the role of being your spiritual mentor or spiritual director. Now, that's not to deny the fact that some will play a larger role in your spiritual development than others. You may even have someone who can be identified as your spiritual father or mother. When writing to the Corinthians, Paul noted, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. He even went so far as to say, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Paul wanted his spiritual children to know they could and should look to him as an example. But he also reprimanded them for aligning themselves solely behind one teacher and declaring themselves to be of Paul or Apollos or Cephas or even of Christ. When we put ourselves completely into the hands of one person, 
Even the one person we feel best represents Christ, we run the danger of being misled by a fallible, even if well-intentioned, person. There is safety in numbers. And the chances of being led astray by a group of believers who are well-grounded in the apostles' doctrine is far less than being led astray by any one individual. That is why we gather together and worship together and study the Word together. That's why we are to be in continual fellowship with a body of believers. And it's the surest way to develop into the well-adjusted, spiritually mature people Christ wants us to be. That's why we are told to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. If we would be formed into the image of Christ, we need to be in fellowship with his entire body. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. When Luke records that the 3,000 devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, what did he mean? Was he talking about the Lord's Supper or just eating together? Four verses later, he writes, And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Clearly, breaking of bread refers to eating a meal in verse 46. So why has the breaking of bread found in verse 42 been traditionally viewed as participating in the Lord's Supper? One commentator simply notes, The breaking of bread in this context is equivalent to the Lord's Supper, taken as part of a common meal, as only a fundamental activity of the church would be put alongside teaching and prayer. The solemnity of our Lord's charge, do this in memory of me, in the shadow of the cross, would lead to speedy obedience once the church was formed. Most would agree that he is right, and that we are safe in concluding that the Lord's Supper is what Luke is talking about here. And when he writes in Acts 27, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, it's fairly obvious he's talking about the church gathering together for communion. Now, we do know the early church often celebrated the Lord's Supper in the midst of a fellowship meal. Jude speaks of love feasts in his letter. And Paul was horrified that when the Corinthians met together to eat the Lord's Supper, they would often come hungry and then fight over who would be first in line. So the breaking of bread often included more than the Lord's Supper, but sharing in communion was the primary purpose for gathering around the table. And as Paul also noted in 1 Corinthians 11, 
Jesus himself ordained it. Paul wasn't there, but he wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is essential that believers remember what Christ did for them on the cross. Because it's his sacrificial death that motivates us to strive to be all he wants us to be. And we commit ourselves anew to being formed in the image of Christ when we take his body and blood and make it into our body and blood. Something sacramental something sacred and emblematic of a spiritual reality takes place when we meet around the Lord's table. Now, some in the spiritual formation movement had lifted the term mystic sweet communion from the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, suggesting it is to be found in the devotional spirituality that comes from swimming in the river of torrential love that flows from his throne of grace. I would suggest it comes from simply meeting around the Lord's table with fellow believers and remembering what Christ has done for us. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Before being commissioned as his apostles, the disciples had taken note of Jesus' prayer life and asked him to teach them to pray. In response to the request, he simply repeated much of what he had earlier taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is no reason to believe the apostles encouraged the 3,000 to pray in ways they had not been taught by Christ. And the elements of the model prayer are very basic and readily understood. Prayer is addressed to our Father in heaven and is fundamentally an acknowledgement of our willingness to yield to his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It includes the request for and confidence in his meeting of our basic needs, our physical needs, and our spiritual needs. 
the expression of our desire to live lives that please Him, lives of obedience and the showing of grace to others. Prayer is talking to God. There is no indication that prayer is a way of hearing from God. He speaks to us through His Word. We speak to Him through prayer. Biblical prayer has been twisted into contemplative prayer in spiritual formation. Prayer that has been described as silence, receptivity, loss of mental images and concepts, wordless prayer and interior stillness, mysterious darkening of the natural faculties, loss of feelings, inability to meditate, being receiving and entering into the prayer of Jesus. It's entering into a mysterious, virtual, trance-like state in which one believes he has achieved union with God. As Ken Boa says, when we enter into the numinous territory of contemplation, it is best for us to stop talking and listen to him in simple, loving attentiveness. In this strange and holy land, we must remove the sandals of our ideas, constructs, and inclinations and quietly listen for the voice of God. And as Richard Foster notes, we want to turn to the lover who is whispering in our ear and look in the divine face, trace with our fingertips the beloved features while speaking softly in return and rejoice to see ourselves reflected in Jesus' gaze and feel our very existence affirmed by His intimate awareness of us. I seriously doubt that is what the 3,000 were doing when they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. We don't have to be looking for something new to be formed into the image of Christ. All we need to do is practice what the first Christians did. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Yes, that will take some discipline on our part. And it will take time to be holy. But if we'll follow the path to maturity that was blazed on the day of Pentecost, I'm confident we will arrive where our Lord desires us to be. We will develop into mature men and women of faith who will one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's commit ourselves to that. Let's stand.